AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for December 1st, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by Matt Kaiser. Matt, welcome. Thanks. John Hogeboom. Welcome, John. Glad to be here again. <laughs> and uh, online we have Jim Clausing. Welcome, Jim. Thanks. Good to be here. I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, well, we hope you had a good Thanksgiving. And uh, I'm not going to ask you guys how your Thanksgiving was because we're actually recording this before Thanksgiving. But nevertheless, uh, we have some uh, good things to discuss here. And uh, let's go first. I think, uh, you know, with all the controversy, you know, I keep reflecting back as we go into the holidays. Uh, we even mentioned in the last program about Target and uh, how they did not have a very good holiday. Um, Perhaps business-wise, going into the holidays, they were doing okay. But nevertheless, uh, there were some casualties associated with that career-wise. And uh, so the question comes up. Yeah, should CISOs <laughs> serve jail time? Um, right. So that's interesting. Um, there was a, a post. This actually started with a post on LinkedIn by, I think his name is George Morietes, and I apologize if I haven't said that right. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was sort of raising the question of, you know, should, can and should a CISO serve jail time for failures to protect the company? Mm -hmm. We've seen, you know, in, the, in large data breaches or large corporate scandals where uh, a C-level will be replaced uh, sort of to, to clean out, you know, whatever bad faith is left and restore confidence to the shareholders and, and provide that sort of feeling like things are going to be back on track. Mm -hmm. um, and he's saying there's all sorts of reasons that might that might happen. You know, if there's some sort of sort mm -hmm. of breach within the company, and you know, a certain number, significant number of you know customers are affected by it. You know, the, his his presence there might affect the brand, might affect the bottom line. Right. Um, other things like Sarbanes Oxley or HIPAA, where you know critical information that's supposed to be properly protected wasn't properly protected, mm -hmm. and you know by law there has to be some sort of repercussions. The other side of it that I that I found was that uh, there was a post by Richard Baitlick. I believe formerly of Mandiant, now of FireEye. I'm saying mm -hmm. that right? No, I don't know if he's at FireEye, but he was formerly Mandiant. For okay. Sure, yeah. Okay. So, um, but it was a post by him stating the converse, which is, no, this should never happen. Mm -hmm. And the reasoning for that is that um, his his take is that companies are constantly under attack. Especially the larger they get, the more they are under attack. Mm -hmm. And the the job of a CISO is not so much to completely prevent all data breaches and all attacks but to protect the company in such a way that minimizes the effect of those right. um, and do the best job they can defending. Now, if a CISO is you know, under the constant fear of being fired for the next data breach that occurs, and you know, in his theory, these are inevitable, mm -hmm. then one, you're going to be, you know, you're somebody who's, whose job is, is constantly under attack and they may just leave that position because of the fear that they're going to be fired rather than leave on their own terms. Mm -hmm. And the other problem that uh, I think I see with it is that if something happens to the company and this person is removed from their position, you're losing somebody who has the knowledge and experience with how the company Absolutely. does cybersecurity. And then you have to train somebody new. No matter how experienced they are in the general field, mm -hmm. they have to learn how the company works. Right. I, I tend to agree. I think the, uh, you know, the primary driver here should not be what events have occurred, but how well is the process to manage the business risk being conducted. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, in order for anybody to put put any doubt or, or pressure against a particular person or organization, I guess you know the next question becomes why the CISO? Because ultimately, that they're not the ones that are making the decisions on the strategy of the company, how much gets invested in the security. They're managing what's allocated to them and perhaps reporting and trying to make the case for it, but it's not necessarily, it doesn't end there. Uh, the shareholders themselves have a, a say in this in terms of who they vote as their, their, uh, their board members. Uh, the board itself should be establishing a strategy. Do we want a business to be impervious to attacks and invest a whole bunch of money but risk going out of business because we spent too much on something like security. So there's a lot more to it than that CISO. They're really a mechanism to facilitate the security strategy that the company is dictating for them. So that's, I guess, one aspect of it that I see. And uh, it's certainly other, as you pointed out, uh, you don't want to get rid of your knowledge base in the face of an event. You really want to reinforce that knowledge base. A CISO is also kind of uniquely positioned to explain the problems that the, the people in the security organization are having mm -hmm. to management. Yes. It's that bridge that they provide that you're going to have to rebuild. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and there, there's a lot more to it than just the mechanics. There's getting to know the people you're working for, getting to know the people you're working with, and uh, being able to do a good job with that. So. I know I've been fumbling through a lot of these things over the last <laughs> couple of years here. So, Security breaches in general, I kind of liken them, especially big ones, like them to a terrorist event. You know, you only have to be wrong once, whereas there's probably tons of events that that C CISO and his team have mitigated without anybody being any of the wiser on a daily basis, most likely, and they don't get any credit for it. They're just kind of behind the scenes taking care of business. And then one thing gets through that's of a significant enough of a you know media attention, and mm -hmm. then all hell breaks loose. So. Uh, this is actually you bring up a good point, John. That is the uh, the classic problem with building a business case for investing in security is the better job you do, the less basis you have or rationale or, or justification you have for adding more money. Right. That is the attacks that you prevented are unknown. And uh, there, in fact, uh, I was in a discussion earlier today about this question about how far should you let an attacker go? Should you block them in the recon? And I know Matt, Matt's getting nervous here, <laughs> but it, it's a it's a good you know it's a good you know sort of intellectual discussion. That is, how far should you let an attacker go? The farther you let them go, the more you learn about what their motives are, what they're going after, what their techniques are, so that you can protect yourself against it. But you have to build that boundary in a sense. And that's one of the reasons I'm a big advocate of layers of security that is inevitably, the layers are really just buying you time anyway. And we're getting way off the original topic, but the, uh, they're really just buying you time. And as the layers are, are basically being broken down, it gives you an opportunity to, to detect it and then do something about it. Right, right. So um, ultimately it comes down to is just manage things the way the best you can manage them and uh, do it without uh, without any concern about what uh, what the recourse might be. But ultimately, you know, somebody might have to take the fall for something. That's uh, that's just the way this, this society is. Right, and right. Uh, so long as we accept that, it's uh, it's just part of the it's just part of the activity. So, uh, so we were talking about attackers and breaking down barriers, and yeah, speaking there's of big, always big there's problems. always another barrier, emerge, right? <laughs> barrier to break down. How about that, John? <laughs> so uh, this is a, a story that uh, came out recently about um, 
we, we probably covered it on the show once before, of uh, an earlier variant of this APT. So there's a Russian APT group uh, deploys um, a particular piece of malware that's been dubbed Mini Duke, it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, they were spear phishing that in email um, in weaponized PDF files. So pretty classic type of APT type of campaign where they target certain individuals, they send these weaponized PDFs, if the person mm-hmm. opens it, drops this mini Duke Trojan on their machine, it allows them you know, full remote control and all that kind of stuff. Uh, interesting variation on this. Um, there is a new version that they're calling Onion Duke, which is being um, uh, delivered to victims uh, that are participating in the Tor network. So last week we talked about Tor and the anonymization stuff. That was maybe if you're trying to keep yourself anonymous, one reason not to use Tor because there's possibly some ways to get around possibly, keeping your, right. possibly, even though we kind of debunked, not so easy. In any event, this one, if you're uh, a user of Tor uh, and you egress out one of these rogue Tor exit nodes that they sent, that, that this uh, adversary has set up, uh, and you go to fetch a binary executable. So what they're doing is they're watching the HTTP traffic, maybe some other things, I, I didn't get the details there, but they watch uh, clients uh, on the Tor network egressing mm-hmm. through them. If it looks like they're gonna fetch uh, an executable, they really quickly grab that executable, wrap their own Trojan inside of that, or wrap it around it rather, mm-hmm. and then deliver it to the victim. Victim runs that executable, drops their Trojan, and the executable works normally, like it, whatever it is that it was supposed to get. Mm-hmm. So they kind of just wrap a layer around it and then uh, deliver it back. The interesting thing about this is very untargeted. So we've talked, uh, maybe a few weeks ago, we talked about another um, APT campaign where it was, uh, was the Dark Hotel one, where it was very specifically targeted, but that same tool had been used kind of in a very widespread spray and pray and then maybe take a look at who you got and throw away the ones that you don't care about and keep the few that you do that might be valuable targets. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be the case here with this Onion Duke. They're not really particularly trying to target any specific people, but once they do this kind of massive infection, they might go back and kind of figure out who they've got and whether this is a valuable uh, victim machine that they might mm-hmm. want to leverage for some right. other purposes. Um, so that's the basic gist of it. Um, there's not much more to say than that. There's some other indicators in this report that you could go look at. Uh, long story short, you're really not going to be vulnerable unless you're using the Tor node, uh, Tor network. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, you would have to use HTTP because if you use HTTPS, they can't really intercept that. Right. Interesting little interesting little trick. It you know, we've talked about some other. Um, I forget there was another story that we were. Uh, actually, maybe you have it later on where um, uh, these, this whole kind of notion of egress nodes being rogue mm-hmm. and delivering something they might not necessarily be designed to deliver. You know, you can, if you have some control of the, the in-between communication of a path, you can inject some stuff that, right. uh, that you might not want as a user on the network. So mm-hmm. buyer beware using the Tor network, basically. It's a long story short. Yeah, and encrypt when you can. Yeah, encrypt when you can. You mentioned untargeted. And, you know, I've had this theory. It's just a theory. But the, uh, there are basically two users in the, on the Tor network. There are the bad guys, and then there are the good guys. They're trying to find the bad guys. 
So <laughs> I, I, I doubt that they're looking at the bad guys, or perhaps maybe they are. Maybe that's a, an opportunity to understand what the bad guys are doing. But then, uh, you know, the counter would be that perhaps it's the bad guys looking to find out what the good guys are doing to chase them down. Right. Again, awesome. so that, so that it, it may be a little more targeted, if my theory is correct, <laughs> than you might expect. Right. And Matt's right. sitting here thinking, gee, I'm a good guy and I use it, but I'm not chasing bad guys. <laughs> Sometimes I, I think we talked about it last week, too, right. that, you know, people who are in, in countries where you don't have full free speech rights mm-hmm. also use Tor yeah, to absolutely. get their messages out. So. Yeah, I'm being a little more gener- overgeneralistic that's a word more overgeneralized but the, uh, the the notion being that it, I suspect that by going into a tour node they're probably targeting a, a particular type of group or a group of activities mm-hmm. that might be taking place and uh, there are perhaps some collateral infections that that uh, that show up in that process well, I'll throw another uh, possibility out as well you know you could have Let's say you're in a large company, you've got users in that company, maybe that user takes their machine home and they want to go get some BitTorrent files or whatever, and mm-hmm. they throw a tour up, they get infected. Now that user is inside a company and you could start moving louder. Maybe he's not of interest, but for this adversary, they've got a machine that is part of the day mm-hmm. in a location that is of interest, and they can start to try to work laterally out to maybe more interesting targets within that company, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very That's typical process true. for them. You know, right. uh, a lot of these APT actors do a lot of lateral movement. Absolutely. Yeah, once you get to the soft GUI inside, it gives more opportunity to move around. Right. Absolutely. All right, so uh, next item here, I guess, um, you know, we were on the theme of stuff that is in transmission is probably a little more vulnerable than if it's kind of sitting at rest in a nice protected environment. And Jim, perhaps you can tell us a little more about this next one. Yeah, this was a a story that um, came out on the heels of the election last month. Uh, A couple of researchers uh, wrote a paper that they entitled Modifying an Off-the-Shelf Wireless Router for PDF Ballot Tampering. Mm. And it's kind of what John was just talking about with the the Tor thing. Um, the what these guys did is they demonstrated that if you've got a, a a device on the path and you've got unencrypted traffic going back and forth, you can intercept it, and modify it, and you know no one will be the wiser. In this case, they were talking particularly about the PDF versions of ballots in in U.S. elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of places in the past that, or there are a couple of areas that do voting over the internet by sending out PDF ballots. The user marks them and then emails them back. They were mm-hmm. used in New Jersey after uh, Hurricane Sandy, you know, in some cases for folks who couldn't get, you know, to a polling place. And, um, you know, it, it's exactly what, what John was just talking about. If you've got unencrypted traffic and you don't control all of the all of the hardware, you know, between the endpoints, the bad guys, if they control any of them, can modify it, and you know, the folks in between don't know the difference. All right. In this particular case, I think they're what they're really highlighting is if you're going to do, you know, if you're going to do this kind of thing uh, for voting or anything, you know important, you need to add a couple of additional steps. I mean, the easy way to fix this is you do some 
public key encryption, mm-hmm. you know, encrypt the thing with the public key of the uh, election authorities, then then the ballot can't be tampered with. It can right. still potentially be blocked someplace in between. I mean, you know, that doesn't account for denial of service, but it does account for the tampering issue. So I, it was it was an interesting uh, intellectual exercise. I think, you know, the whole idea of Internet voting, um, there are some some ways that it can be done that could be done effectively, but, uh, you know, some more effort has to go into it than potentially has been done up to this point. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it, it may, just to make sure I understand correctly, this is a study on what could potentially be done. It is not a case or an evidence of this having been done in in the in for real. Is that correct? It is right. These these two researchers um, actually did a proof of concept showing they actually modified a real wireless router, and the idea mm-hmm. was, you know, if this is the router in somebody's home and they're filling out their their ballot at home and emailing it back that um, they they actually did modify a router mm-hmm. to show a proof of concept of how it would work uh, but they are not claiming that it has been done in any real elections and potentially affected the outcome mm-hmm. of elections or anything it was just highlighting you know that there are some issues uh, if we're go- if we ever get to the point of doing internet voting there are some issues that need to be dealt with Absolutely. So, it, so perhaps I think you were suggesting this. A better solution would be perhaps an application that helps to to uh, manage the, uh, the the actual doing the voting, signing the the, uh, the 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 ballot, and then sending it in. It doesn't necessarily deal with the endpoint security issue. It certainly deals with the uh, security issues in the transmission path. Right. Yeah. The, this this one where they were really only talking about the transmission path, which is why right. it's a perfect follow-on to the story that we just did with the uh, the Tor network. Is, mm-hmm. you know, if the bad guys control any of the things in between, if it's unencrypted, they can modify it. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't really been vo- uh, following the, uh, the electronic voting activities. Has anybody heard about the mobile apps that have been uh, are being proposed to be able to support remote balloting? I mean, it seems like that. If I if I were to choose a method to do it, I think I would go down perhaps that path. Um, but I guess you know, this is one of these things that you have to be careful about not being discriminatory toward uh, particular groups of people and what they have being a means to, you know, bias and what type of voting might take place. But uh, certainly from a uh, certainly from a technology point of view and the potential for security and being able to uh, facilitate more convenience and getting more votes in, uh, that seems like an approach that uh, should be at least investigated, if not perhaps pursued further. Yep. Uh, there, there are a number of things that have to be dealt with before we really, before I'd be comfortable with it. You know, you, you've got the issue of, um, you know, the encryption and signing to verify that it wasn't tampered with. Mm-hmm. You want to keep things anonymous. You know, so you have that issue. I, there mm-hmm. are a lot of issues that go into it, and I've, Absolutely. I know some people who have studied this. I kind of in my free times periodically go look at the, at the literature on this, but um, it's something that we'll get to eventually, I, I th- firmly believe. Yep. Okay, so... Uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, I was yeah. just going to say one other thing is that um, 
I think the important point of this study was that they're kind of saying the way that some of these um, electronic uh, voting, particularly, you know, like the New Jersey Sandy one, didn't really have any protection around it. Right. And they, it was, you know, um, vulnerable to interception. And I guess putting my tinfoil hat on for a moment, you know, a really motivated adversary who perhaps wanted to get elected. Um, if or, they could, or wanted to keep somebody else from being elected. It might not even else, be someone right? in the United States. But they if you got closer <laughs> to where that PDF is supposed to be delivered by email, right. you could intercept a lot more than trying to modify a home router. Um, you know, if you had some access to the actual uh, internet backbone and get closer to that particular Absolutely. send mail server that was receiving yeah. those emails, you could do a lot of, hey, We're in not it. for this guy, not for this guy, not for this guy. <laughs> right. Throw those ones away or whatever, you know. Yeah. I think in the case of Sandy, um, there was a case that a local election was actually sort of someone, it wasn't an intentional denial of service, but they were using email for mm -hmm. this. And uh, the number of voters and the number of votes filled up the inbox before the entire population could actually vote. Mm. So yeah. interesting anecdote. It doesn't take much to take down an e-voting system that hasn't been fully designed. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, and, it, and being able to design into, I mean, not just designing the system, designing the security into the system, obviously, is something right. that, that folks need, need to be paying a little more attention to. I'm a little surprised about voting and, and because it, that's one that is certainly getting scrutiny. That is, almost every solution, even the ones that appear to be good, they get, uh, they get a lot of scrutiny. And so um, it, it, you would think that a voting machine would look a little more like an ATM. <laughs> right. Well, I could, I could go on. Let's just say that some ATMs aren't physically hardened very well. Well, either. yeah, we've we've uh, we've had some discussions about that as well. But certainly, uh, it, if you're in a room among others that are voting, and trying to drill a hole in the side of the box, somebody's probably going to notice. <laughs> probably. So, yeah, the perfect anyway, solution I is when you go to send your email yeah. that has your ballot in it. The only way to send it is you have a little device that you have to dip your thumb in some purple ink. Yeah. Like they do. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, I know in some countries that's what they do is they color your thumb so you yeah. can't do it again. Right. can't vote twice. That's cool. Anyway. All right. Thank you. Uh, so next item here. Let's, um, uh, oh, boy. You, you know, we were just talking about the trans security and transmission. I mentioned it doesn't address the endpoint security. And I guess some security isn't necessarily better than no security. <laughs> Well, the, the, the idea that you might have security is probably right. worse than, uh, yeah. So, sorry. <laughs> Go for it, man. Terrible transition. Let's keep going. Uh, so this is, a, this is actually results that came out from Microsoft in their, their SIR, which mm -hmm. is a report they put out occasionally. And this is about um, the expired anti-malware services that come with new laptops. Mm -hmm. So... Microsoft um, uses the MSRT, malicious software removal tool. They take a little bit of analytics when they clean up something on a, on a laptop using MSRT uh, mm -hmm. as of Windows 8. So what they were saying is that it turns out that there are a significant number of users out there that have malware infections, and this correlates to having expired anti-malware solutions. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, the document itself actually has some pretty good, interesting graphs and data about this. Some of the interesting correlations are that the levels, uh, the proportions of Infected users um, for expired anti-malware solutions are about the same as having no malware solution as opposed to having an out-of-date malware solution. Right. They're all about the same proportion uh, of infected users, which is interesting because 
like you know, you would think that maybe there would be a small difference in slightly out of date to mm -hmm. having nothing at all, but it's it's strange that they're all about the same height, um, right. the bar the the bar graphs. Um, another interesting point is they they took. Um, a sample of which domains were, uh, sorry, which machines were connected to a domain as not. Mm -hmm. And I think they use that sort of as their flag as to whether or not this was a corporate managed machine. Because most home users don't actually join to a domain unless they're a computer enthusiast and they've got something set up at home. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems that expired anti-malware, and this is kind of no surprise, is more prevalent in machines that are not joined to a domain. Right. So this, this again, points to home users who have, have are not either not aware or don't care enough that their, their anti-malware solution is expired. Um, there are apparently two primary companies whose malware solutions were the representative sample for expired malware. Uh, they didn't say which ones they were. I can take a few educated guesses, mm -hmm. um, but maybe that's a question that should be raised to those two companies as to what's the proper response when your solution expires, should you automatically default to something like Microsoft's own default tools? Mm -hmm. Should you try and, and alert the user? Should you prevent them from using their machine until there's malware protection, which is probably not the right way to do it, but it's a consideration. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. There was an interesting graph in there as well that, showed, that charted the number of um, expired anti-malware solutions over a two-year period. And you can see they start in January and it slowly trends upwards. And then I think at some point in there, there was a Windows uh, 8 update that started pushing a change that if you didn't have anything, they would automatically update to whatever Microsoft solution is. Okay. You can see a dip there. But then mm -hmm. you can also see whenever Christmas comes around and people buy new laptops, as that period time, there's, there's a big resurgence in that because everyone's right. got brand new laptops with a 30-day trial or a 60-day right. trial, and they're all expiring. Right. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think there's um, there's probably a lot of misconception on the part of your typical end user goes out, buys a laptop, has their 30-day trial, it expires, and uh, from their point of view, they're saying, "Well, it's, it's still running." They're just trying to get more money out of me. Exactly. And uh, so it, it, the, uh, the the mindset might not be really realizing that the signatures really need to be update. Up, up to date, and that there's actually a, a you know a value proposition or a value add that comes from that uh, that, that protection. So it's a uh, you know this one it would be kind of interesting to see um, how the statistics. And obviously, these aren't available here, but if you didn't have the mal the uh, malicious software removal tool at all, and didn't have the opportunity to gather those statistics, but had those statistics, how that would, might even be different as well <laughs> just a sort of a head scratcher there so uh, very interesting I think uh, you know this notion of false sense of security is a is a big player in this that um, you know do the browsing habits of people change thinking that their computer is protected from malicious sites whereas if they were if they didn't think there was any protection on there except for their behaviors would they behave differently in doing that I, I'll I'll be honest, I, I think many people are still in the 1990s mindset of malicious executables are a problem, but mm -hmm. I can go to any website I want. I don't think exploit kits have quite made it into the, the consciousness net, that you can go to a site and have nothing apparent happen to you and still be compromised. Yeah, that's a good possibility. Yeah, that's a good possibility. Okay. So next item here, I thought what we would do is uh, open up a little bit of debate here, and this is the scenario. 
Um, you know, it, it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, this, uh, the notion, what I call security policy erosion. That is this notion that when you start a system, when you start an enterprise, you start with a very basic and well-founded policy. You know, like for example, I'm gonna do this application and I'm only allowing users to come in through the web. And uh, so I'm using, I'm allowing browsing, but that's the only thing that's allowed through there. And so I have a very basic security policy. And then as time goes on, the application evolves, it needs to connect to that system over there, and then it needs to connect to that system over there, and oh, by the way, well, it's not just web, you really want to be able to do some peer-to-peer -peer or something along those lines. Next thing you know, the firewall is a big, ugly mess. And uh, it's not necessarily just one application behind the firewall, you might have a number of applications behind the firewall. And uh, what, you know, one application retires, or maybe it should have retired, and then there are new applications added, and so next thing you know, you have a firewall with two million rules in it. What do you do? How do we deal with this problem of security policy erosion? And I'm gonna look at you, Matt, first. Okay. What do you think? So, and I'll, I'll probably take a harder stance on this than most people. I think strict policy adherence and making sure that users understand what the policies are, because I think mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of erosion will happen as you know, users will tend to try and find ways around policy. They mm -hmm. won't understand why it exists, they'll know what they want to do, and they'll try and get it done. Um, mm -hmm. I also think that periodic review, like you say, of, of firewall rules as to why they were there, I think there's like a concept of championing a firewall rule or having someone associated with it and tracked with it that says, this went in, you know, uh, in December of 2014, it was Matt's rule. He knew why it was there. And if anybody asks why it's there, when we do a, a maybe a periodic review, he's got to vouch for it and say, this still needs to happen or this can be taken right. out. I realize, and I, I think I've seen this before, where somebody will leave a company and they were a champion for something like this. You still got to have some sort of continuity. I realize as you add more complexity to this system, you're coming up with just as much of a mess as, as your firewall rules, in a, in mm -hmm. a sense. Um, but I think it could be managed properly. Yeah, that's a good point. So you made a couple of good points. One is the uh, configuration management is a big part of this. That is, you need something that's helping to track your firewall rule changes, not just what changes are taking place, but who's responsible for those changes. Now, if that employee leaves, you know, perhaps you might want to tie it to not just a particular person, but to the application that needs that particular function, it, you have a little better chance of being able to trace it back and then periodically performing reviews uh, uh, along those lines. Um, I think the other point that you'd made is that um, really, and this is I think the very important part of a security organization is that a security organization really needs to be a facilitator of the business. That is, the people that are creating these applications or systems are motivated to perform a function to support the business. And if you are an inhibitor to that, they will find a way around. They, they, the, it's that we use the term perverse motivations occur. Mm -hmm. And so there really needs to be kind of a, uh, we want to help you, we'll find a way to do this, we'll find a way to do it in a secure way instead of the subversive way. So two very good points. I'll go to Jim next. <laughs> Jim online, uh, let's see, uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I, you, you hit on some of the big ones. I mean, I. I spend a number of years, you know, administering firewalls and having to deal with really ugly rule sets. And it was, you know, it, unfortunately, they rarely got reviewed. You know, once a rule is in there, it seems like it's in there forever. And that's that's something that needs to be fixed that 
you know, periodically you need to go back and see, is this still required? Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, the, the application that originally asked for it may not be there anymore. Or, or the other extreme, it's one of those that nobody knows how it works anymore, so everybody's afraid to touch it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we've all had to deal with those. So, I, yeah, I, I think you hit on the on, on some of the, the biggies that come to my mind. But, you know, Matt's young. I'll retire and I'll just leave the problem to him. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was wondering where you're going to stick that retirement and get a, get rid of the problem and hand it to somebody else, or you could always wait for a security breach and get fired and wait for somebody else to handle it. So. <laughs> no, I'd rather not get fired. We're not advocating jail time either. So, <laughs> okay, I'll give you a chance here, John. Yeah, I guess you know specifically with respect to firewalls, basically you need to review those policies right. on a regular basis. Um, never let application developers have control of your firewall policy because mm-hmm. they're just going to drop an allow all at the bottom right. of it, yeah. and then the whole thing's kaput at that point. But in my opinion, not you know exclusively to firewalls, but to all of your stuff that you do, all of your applications and whatnot, you need to define some sort of lifecycle management around all of these different right. things. And you need to be able to, as a manager, be able to ju- justify uh, new projects that you might want to on-ramp because invariably what happens is you you get everybody geared up to build or design something new. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do it one time, it works great. You got all your security policies around that particular application, great. Everybody goes off to work on something you know new and they're all mm-hmm. doing that. And then this thing just kind of just goes right. away and it's not being upkept. And uh, you either need to kill it or go back with some lifecycle management, reevaluate it, rebuild it. Every time you redo something, it's done better the second time, much better. Mm-hmm. The third time, even better. Uh, I, I've so often, been in, it's an old saying of mine. I have to, I have to basically echo, echo what you said. That, that's true in small things and big things. Oftentimes, you know, working on a document and the application crashes or something like that, it always comes out better the second time. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> true and in applications. Especially, well. I came from a development world. You know, the right. first time I write an application. Uh, from a, even a, a small or large one, after I go back to it the second time, the second version is always much better. Because I'm like, you know, when I did that the first time, I was just trying to rush through this particular portion. Or having used the application, I realized that this is a better way to do it because the workflow just wasn't right for what I thought it was going to be, kind of things like that. That was a big um, part of the principles of agile development. That is, do the quick and simple, see how it develops as it grows, Really do the imp- performance uh, improvements on it where you need performance, where you need additional security, where you need additional features, and use that to, you know, basically follow the application through its entire life cycle as opposed to develop it at the first, you know, do a huge requirements definition, develop the application from the, you know, from the ground up, and uh, have this enormous tower of application and not necessarily have it even support the user's needs, let alone have all the uh, capabilities that are needed to protect it as well as uh, satisfy the user. So right. I, I think that's... Well, uh, and the other the other thing that we kind of hit on earlier is is to have folks who understand security involved from the beginning. Right. Uh, you know, if we... Trying to tack security on later, it always is a kludge. It never works efficiently. You know, it, you said don't let the application developers have access, you know, be in control of the firewall rules mm-hmm. because they'll, because they really don't understand what they need when they start it. So they'll just open it up to everything, you know, work with them to define 
how to do it securely from the start is much easier than trying to go back after the fact and, and patch it on. Right. Very clearly, security is a discipline in itself. You can build an entire career out of it. You can't necessarily expect an application developer to be cognizant of all the security things they need to do, or even more particular, the solutions that are available that would be to help to make that application a more secure application. So I think the, uh, that cooperative aspect is very uh, real and true and needed, as you said, Jim. And, and John, you pointed out, I think Jim also mentioned to it, or perhaps Matt, I've lost track here, but the periodic review that is to actually endure the, uh, the regimen of an audit on a periodic basis to make sure that uh, what you have done still should be that way as time goes on. Right. Sometimes it's best to just scrap everything and start over too. Right. Sometimes Once things get yeah, to a certain it's, point. Sometimes uh, just squash the system and replace it with something entirely new and different. And you know, it, it, there's some true validity in that. That is, even around the security solution itself, even if the application needs to perform the same kind of function, the way it performs that function is likely going to need to change over time. And sometimes what you end up doing is, you know, opening the firewall or right. doing things that you're really trying to get around solving the problem as opposed to revisiting what the users really want and then building something that really facilitates their needs. So a uh, very good point there as well. I'll add one other. Uh, what about what we tend to do, security analysis? You know, if you go and look at the firewall policies and in this big data time, getting some history and some idea of what applications are actually doing and considering, you know, this application is not really using this path. It's using that path now. That at least would potentially give you an opportunity to flag that there might be a configuration management issue or a need to review it in more detail. Just a thought. Yeah, well, that was one thing when I was a firewall admin. I always wanted to log hits on all the rules mm -hmm. so that if I could, you know, if I found a rule that was no longer being hit, it was time to go back and ask the person who asked for it whether it was still required. Right, absolutely. Um, on the other side, though, or you, maybe you'll find a rule that is firing constantly. You know, mm -hmm. maybe it's not a malicious thing. Maybe there's, there's a legitimate reuse for that one URL for some reason that has changed over the years. Maybe it was blocked for policy reasons five years ago, but now it's, you know, a, a significant portion of the company has a legitimate use for it. You know? Right. Well, and there's, it's those kinds of things that really need to be viewed. So you want to look at the, the positives and the negatives that are taking place and try to, to make sure that the things are consistent with what you'd expect. Right. Well, the other reason for the, for the logging all of it and analyzing that was, you know, performance. You, Mm -hmm. You move the rules that get hit a lot up to the top so that you're not so that your firewall performance improves. Yeah, and and uh, I, I can imagine cases where you have load balancing perhaps that's intended and you move it and the IP address changes and the rules don't really accommodate that and so you think you have load balancing lots of resources and they're not <laughs> they're not able to get there. So I was going to say before that you know I almost said you know is this really security's job? Uh, but then I thought better of it. I think what the real question is, is how can IT and security better communicate what's going on? Because I mm -hmm. think if there isn't good communication between the two groups, you'll have these sort of situations where there's an IT need for something and mm -hmm. security is not informed and you start having a, a case where you have a thousand firewall hits on a mm -hmm. legitimate site or you have you know, something that, I, that we go ahead and block because we find it anomalous. Mm -hmm. We talked about perverse motivations. There's also the positive motivation that you want to try to create. And uh, I happened to be talking with a group earlier today. That's why I have a tie on. 
the uh, and one of the topics they were talking about is uh, one of the problems was that you know the 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 IT folks, the folks that are administering machines, they want to build a box around it and protect it. And it's the uh, you know it's the uh, organization of no, I think was the analogy or the the phrase was that was used. And uh, and the challenge was well, how do you do how do you deal with that? Well, perhaps what needs to be done is to put those people in a position where their job isn't to protect that box. Their job is to facilitate hosting applications in a secure way. Now they're changing what they're thinking about. They're not trying to block things from going into the box. They're trying to facilitate you know, doing a positive, positive thing for the business and trying to work with the organization to make sure that those applications are able to work properly. So sometimes it's just the mindset around what your responsibilities are and making sure that the folks that they're, wor they're working on it you know, if the if the if the role is run a firewall and and run rules and block things, that's not necessarily going to facilitate doing a good job with the security and applications. And to your point earlier, you don't want your application developers trying to get around the firewall rules or or whatever protection mechanisms you have in place. And with firewall rules and even all your software, comment. And I'll put lots <laughs> of comments in. Yeah. Why did you add this rule? When did you add it? Mm -hmm. So that when you do go to review it, maybe two years later, you'll actually have some kind of sense of, oh, I know why this was put in here, as opposed to, or the guy leaves and now somebody else has to pick it up and you're like, why is this in here? I have no idea. You yeah, know? and actually we, we have an entire change management platform for firewall rules and security policy activities that tie it back to the organization that requested it and how it's managed. So uh, that, that's even a step further. But at the very least, if you're, you know, it's a small organization and activity, Certainly, you have a, the opportunity to provide commenting. Right. Good point. All right. Good discussion. I really appreciate that. And uh, thank you very much. And that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. You can find our program, ThreatTrack, on the AT&T Tech channel. It's att.com slash threattrack. Uh, it's also available on YouTube and iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attsecurity. Like to thank you, Jim. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, John. I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.